If God is real, why doesn't he prove himself? If God is real, why is there so much suffering in the world? If God is real, why doesn't he answer my prayers? These are the kind of questions that you might have at a see you lunch bar or are likely to have yourself. Where was God in April 1975 where it's estimated between 1.4 and 2 million Cambodians died from disease, starvation and torture? Where was he on the 14th of December 2012 when Adam Lanza walked into a school killing 20 children and 7 adults? You might ask, if God is real, why am I still battling with sin? Why is it so hard to live for him? When is he going to come back? As Christians, what are we meant to think in a world that is littered with this kind of death, oppression and sin? Where was God in the book of Exodus? Israelites were enslaved, beaten and oppressed. Their babies were killed as they were born. Young children were drowned in the Nile. Where is God? A very contemporary question but one that must have been in the minds of the Israelites as well. Why doesn't he save us? But just before we get into answering that question and looking at chapters 1 and 2, I want to give a quick overview of Exodus, just a framework to set up the book, and there's uh, two points on your handout for that. Firstly, we need to think of Exodus as a chapter rather than a book in isolation. There is something like when the third Lord of the Rings film came out, I hadn't seen the second. So the night before going to the cinema, I had to rent the second. Otherwise, I'd be bound to misinterpret things or people or situations. As we go through Exodus, you need to keep in your mind all that you know about Genesis so that you might understand it more fully. Just to persuade you of this, if you look down at your Bibles, um, in the Hebrew, the original language, uh, the first word of Exodus is the word and. So reading from the last verse of Genesis, we go like this. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. So we're going to be doing quite a bit of flicking back to Genesis as we look at Exodus. But secondly, I think it would be useful just to give you an idea of where we're going in the book as a whole. And just three quick sentences on this. Number one, this is a story about taking a people from slavery and making them into a people of worship. Second, it is about taking people, 70 people, and turning them into thousands of people. And thirdly, it is a story about God revealing himself. So that's slavery to worship, 70 to thousands, and God revealing himself. So with that framework in place, we're going to start by looking at chapters 1 and 2 under the headings of preparing a people and preparing a servant. So firstly, preparing a people. The Israelite nation consists of 70 at the beginning of the book, says verse 5, more of a family really than a nation. Now look down at chapter 1 with me and follow me through four verses. Verse 7, the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous. Verse 9, the Israelites have become much too numerous. Verse 12, they multiplied and spread. Verse 20, 
the people increased and became even more numerous. Clearly, one of the big themes of chapter 1 is that the nation of Israel is rapidly growing. God is preparing a people. And as you read this, your mind should be rushing back to Genesis. Firstly, this is creation language, isn't it? We've just seen it in our groups. God told man to be fruitful and increase in number. Verse 7, the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly. They are doing exactly what God told them to do. And it's also fulfilling the covenant that, we, uh, that God gave to Abraham that we just looked at. Verse 2 of Genesis 12 said, I will make you into a great nation. In the Israelites' suffering, it seemed that God was distant. But we see that he is bringing about his purpose in the world by acting on his covenant, exactly as he said he would do. Look down with me at verse 1, and then flick to chapter 2, verse 24, and look for the common name. It's Jacob. You see it? The, start, the chapters start and finish with Jacob. And you may well know that Jacob was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. And as we've seen in our groups this morning, it was with Abraham that God made his covenant that was passed down from generation to generation. So when we hear of Jacob, we have to think of him as the one who is carrying the covenant of God. This mention of Jacob in two chapters where we wonder if God has, all got, all, has gone away makes us realise that this is just complete nonsense. In fact, God's covenant with Israel is the bookends that hold these chapters together. Even when it appears that God is taking a break, we see that he is at work. As you read more carefully, you see that God's work is across this whole passage. Every baby born here is a miracle, let alone a whole nation being born under such oppression. And as this nation grew, it became an obvious threat to the Egyptians. So Pharaoh implements oppression and slavery to suppress the numbers. His first plan was to treat the Israelites so bitterly that they would lose the will to live, let alone bring new life into the world. However, God is working and the nation grows. So he tries a more vicious tactic. He calls on the midwives to kill every baby boy born. But the midwives, they fear God and do not obey Pharaoh's command. Once again, God is working and the nation grows. And I love the reward to the midwives. Maybe you spotted it earlier. To those who fear God over the cruel oppressor, he just gives them a family of their own. The reward is to make the nation even bigger. So now Pharaoh, he appeals to all the people. If you see a baby boy, you must drown him in the Nile. He has every Egyptian on the case. Surely this will put a stop to the rapid growth of the Israelites. But God is working and the nation grows. Make sure that you take just a moment to consider the atrocity of what we are reading. Imagine the fear of every birth, not knowing if the baby will survive or if he will live past a week old. Imagine the terror of the midwives as they were summoned to Pharaoh. These are very dark days. 
Yes, this, this is a chapter about suffering, about slavery, even about murder. But it is also a chapter about God's providence, about his control. Even in this apparent mess, he is in complete control. And if you need a little bit more persuading on this, turn back with me in your Bibles to Genesis 15, verse 13. So verse 13. Then the Lord said to him, that is Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. Exodus is not God making the best of a bad situation. Let me say that again. Exodus is not God making the best of a bad situation. Exodus is God working to bring about his plan for the world. It's just not happening in the way or the timing that they or we might have expected it. And expecting God to work on our terms is a habit that I think we have developed. We expect God to work on our time and according to our expectations. And then we wonder where he is when things don't go how we want them. Matthew 24, verse 6, says, You hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. And then, when we hear of wars, what do we do? What does the world do? They're alarmed. We say, where is God? Matthew goes on to say, You'll be handed over and persecuted and put to death. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And that, that's our world, isn't it? People giving up as Christians. Brothers and sisters persecuted and put to death. False teachers appearing. Teaching that everybody will, be, uh, everybody will go to heaven. It doesn't really matter what you do now. It doesn't really matter what you believe. And of course, people, they love that. It is, as Paul says to Timothy what their itching ears want to hear. But just as God was preparing a people for himself back in Exodus, he is preparing a people for himself today. Suffering should not surprise us, because God has said that it will happen. We must read God's word, and then take him at his word. However, knowing that God is in control doesn't mean that we can just sit back and pretend like everything is okay. It is precisely because God is in control that we can cry to him for help. Look down with me at chapter 2, verse 23. You see, the Israelites groaned in their slavery. They cried out to their faithful God for help because they knew that he is powerful. Oppression and slavery and suffering uh, should drive us back to God. It should cause us to cry out to him, to appeal to him, because we see that we are powerless to help ourselves. Yes, we expect it, but that doesn't mean that we flippantly accept it. Suffering, says C.S. Lewis, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So as you hear of your fellow Christians suffering, pray to the Almighty God, the only one who is mighty to change anything. But as you pray, know that he is in complete control, 
And he is working his purpose in his world, despite appearances. An example of this, uh, as the doors to China were shut uh, to the world for a decade starting in the mid-60s, it appeared that they were also shut to God. Missionaries returned home in what was called a reluctant exodus. Any sort of religious expression was banned, including Christianity. The small shoot of life that was seen was driven underground due to the fear of aggressive persecution. But when the doors were reopened, there was quite a surprise. Years after, in 2006, the New York Times wrote that although China bans foreign missionaries and sometimes harasses and imprisons Christians, especially in rural areas, Christianity is booming in China. God is always at work and is always consistent to his purpose for his world. How that plays out, we might not understand. And this isn't only true of the world up there, but also on a much more personal level. Whether it be seemingly random suffering uh, with housemates or at university, or just a really tough time. Or maybe it's the feeling of bondage and oppression to the slavery of sin. In those situations, we must also trust that God is at work for his purpose, despite the appearance of our lives. A.W. Tozer says this, I have often wished that there was some way to bring the modern Christian into a deeper spiritual life, painlessly by short, easy lessons, but such wishes are in vain. No shortcut exists. God has not bowed to our nervous haste, nor embraced the methods of our machine age. It is well that we accept the hard truth now, The man who must know God must give time to him. We may have good and right desires for our lives, but we must learn to trust in God and his timing. We know that he has given us means to grow in him through the word and through prayer and the church, so trusting in him will look like not neglecting the gifts that he has given us to do that. Moving on to chapter 2, the writer zooms out from the nation to just one family and then to one man, Moses. And we'll look at this under the title of God Preparing a Servant. And I, I do think that this story is extraordinary. Not only do the parents of Moses decide to have a baby in such an environment, but he survives birth and actually remains hidden for three months. Now, I live next door to a baby, and there's no way that he would remain hidden for three months. In fact, some of you know my housemate Chris sleeps with earplugs next to his bed for the middle of the night when he gets woken up by the baby crying. I don't know how the mother of Moses manages to do it, but somehow she manages to hide her baby. But when she could do it no longer, she places him on the Nile in a basket covered in pitch, a kind of waterproof resin. Now, more accurately, the word for basket here is actually the word for ark. And once again, this, of course, sends our mind back to Genesis. God is saving people again here, as he did from the flood. He is bringing about his purpose again in his world. And of course, you're getting the picture, all of this is God's work. I mean, it's, it's not really a great plan, is it? Uh, 
You send your baby down a river that was used to drown babies so that your baby might survive. But not only does Moses survive, but he happens to be found by Pharaoh's daughter, who happens to disobey her own father and chooses to keep the child, and she just happens to choose Moses' own mother to raise him. I'm sure you see it. In a chapter where God seems distant and or out of control, nothing could be further from the truth. God is in complete control and he is working about his purpose and that purpose will be implemented through his servant Moses. And it's as I started to look at this servant that I was puzzled. You see, chapter 2 represents the first 80 years of 120 years of Moses' life. And out of these 80 years, the author decides to tell us about two events the striking down of the Egyptian and the saving of the daughters. I don't know if you've seen the film The Prince of Egypt, but whilst the film chooses to imagine all the mischief and fun that Moses gets up to as he grows up, the Bible only focuses on these two moments. And we're going to look at the first one together in a bit more detail. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defence and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. You see, Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. That's the account taken from Stephen's speech in Acts 7. Moses' initial intentions were not wrong. To visit his fellow people, even if it took him 40 years, and to defend them was not wrong. But in killing the Egyptian, we see that Moses is trying to do God's work without God. You see, judging and condemning is God's place. Life and death is his business. Saving people is what he will do. Moses is trying to be God here. And we can see that it does not go well. But it's tempting, isn't it? For some around the world, the temptation will be violence, as it was for Moses. The temptation to take things into your own hands when your church is burned down or your friend is beaten. It must be tempting to retaliate for righteous anger to overflow into rage as it did for Moses. But for us here at Sheffield, in Lighthouse, I think the temptation is to attempt to do God's work of salvation without him. And we see this in perhaps three ways. Firstly, we take God's mission and we make it our mission. All too often, we don't trust on him and rely on him in prayer for the salvation of those around us. How regularly do you plead with God for the salvation of your friends and your family? How often do you go to him as the only hope for those around you? Instead, there can be a great temptation to put time and effort into the event or the invitation or the argument and to depend little on God. Or secondly, we trust ourselves for our own salvation. When we feel entangled by sin and beaten down by the devil, we turn to our own will and effort. We try to, we pick ourselves up, ready to face the world alone. 
It's that moment when you've done that thing again. The thing that you know is sinful and you determine not to do it again. You might think to yourself, this time, this time I really mean it. Or to put it in a positive way, perhaps you've been spending much time with God recently. Loads of time at church, loads of time doing regular quiet times. And now, because you've spent perhaps an extra 15-20 minutes in the Bible, you're sure of your salvation. You've always known that you were saved, but now that you've spent more time with God, how could he reject me now? You see, either way, positively or negatively, we're depending on ourselves for our own salvation. And thirdly, there's judgment. I wonder if we're guilty of that. We judge who will and who won't listen to Jesus. We see two people and we decide who is more and who is less likely to receive the gospel. But election is God's business, it's not ours. Things ended badly for Moses when he tried tried to do things alone. And why should we expect anything different? You see, we know that Moses was trying to do God's work because the author draws a direct parallel between them. These events are singled out in Moses' life because these are actually the first 15 chapters of Exodus in miniature. Listen to this. As Moses saw the oppression struck down the Egyptian, saved the daughters and delivered them. So God saw the oppression, struck down the firstborns, saved Israel and delivered them from the Egyptians. If you want to look at that yourself, then use the ESV as the translation is a bit better there. You see, God's work will become Moses' work. And it's important to understand this as we approach the rest of the book. Because we see that God is preparing a servant who will be his instrument for his work. But from a passage today, we see that Moses cannot do it alone. And this humbling of Moses is perhaps one of the ways in which God is preparing his servant. And bear this in mind as we go through the rest of the book. Because we see a very close relationship between God and Moses. So much so that when the people reject Moses, they are actually rejecting God. He is God's servant who will do God's will in God's timing. Trying to do it himself is not going to work. He must wait and trust God for the deliverance of his people. And this waiting and trusting is not easy. You see, it it can do us good to read of the perhaps exceptional Christians of the past, people that God has used in magnificent ways. To read of the age of Wesley and Whitfield is inspiring and it can spur us on. But we are not to expect such an extraordinary Christian ministry or witness. We must just concern ourselves with serving and trusting God. Because to desire these extraordinary lives may well drive us to trust in ourselves and not God, and particularly in God's timing. Don Carson has written a book called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, The Life and Reflections of Tom Carson. As he reflects on his father's life and ministry in Quebec, he tells us of the years of faithful ministry with very little gospel fruit. He tells us of his father weeping in his study as a couple who who had attended the church for years just walked away from the faith. He tells us the story of a man who continued to trust God through personal battles, through battles with sin. Even when he did not see the gospel advancing, he continued to trust God. 
Like that, we should not try to do God's work without God. But when you are tempted to to depend on yourself, we must remember how God has worked in the past. Out of his people, God brought forth, forth Moses. God used him under an oppressive king who sought to kill him, much like our own saviour, Jesus Christ, who was born into oppression under King Herod, who wanted him dead. God used his servant Moses to deliver his people out of slavery to the Egyptians. God sent his servant Jesus to deliver his people out of slavery to sin. There is no other point in the history of the world where it seemed that God had lost control more as when his only son hung on a cross, mocked, beaten and killed by sinful men. But this was his plan to complete his purpose. To have a great nation chosen by him to be with him in the true promised land, heaven for all eternity. It is because of him that we can have every confidence that God's plan is on track. So when you look at, at the, uh, as you look at the world around you, or even if you look at your own life and you can't see God, you must look to Christ. It is as we preach Christ to ourselves that we will find confidence to trust God despite appearances. When you're tempted to trust in yourself for your own salvation, know that he has saved you. When you're tempted to make his mission your mission, know that he will draw people to himself and he is with you in his work. When you are tempted to judge others, know that he will judge the living and the dead. When you don't know if God hears your prayers, then know that he is there interceding for us as we cry to the Father. At the beginning, I asked this question. As Christians, what are we meant to think in a world that is littered with this kind of death, oppression and sin? The answer of Exodus 1 and 2 is that God will bring about his purpose in his world, despite appearances. So depend on him rather than yourself. There's some more questions on your handout that will help us to think through this. So turn to discussion now.